This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the different leadership styles seen during the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this seems weird, because aren't Ezra and Nehemiah two separate books, and yet we're doing one podcast about both of them? Right, yeah. The, uh, the Jews have always seen Ezra and Nehemiah as very, very close companion vol- volumes, and, and oftentimes just seen as one volume itself. Uh, and the Masoretic text, which is one of the manuscript texts that we use, um, one of two major ones, uh, the Masoretic text. Written in Hebrew, right? Written in Hebrew. Um, is, uh, is, uh, has Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, as one story. And really, you almost have, even if you keep them as two separate books as we have it in our Bible, it's great and fine. It's really hard to isolate them and see them independently of each other. It's like one continuous story and Ezra and Nehemiah make appearances in both. And, and so it's, it's just, it, I've always found it good to read them. But, but also what I'm going to do with Ezra and Nehemiah is best if we just package them together. Is it continuous story or parallel stories? Ooh, I would say probably more continuous. I wouldn't say there's not necessarily overlap, but I've always seen them as more of a continuous narrative. Um, they're covering, it's a continuous narrative of the same period of history, the same return, uh, so to speak. Um, and, and I gotta be honest, this isn't a section of, uh, I, I'm, I'm still studying Ezra and Nehemiah. There's a ton of stuff going on in the inside, in the guts of the book. Like if we were to really dive into some passages, we won't, we're going to quote a couple passages as we go today, but I, I've always been moved by just stepping back and making some big observations of the story in Ezra and Nehemiah, it can be somewhat problematic at times. We're even going to see that uh, today. But as I as I try to step back, I try to view it in historical context, at that place in history, what human consciousness was, and and try to appreciate it where it sits. I've really uh, pulled away, but I feel like are some uh, some good lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah. But before we do that, we got into the remnant period of history last podcast. And uh, we never really set up what happened. And we talked about them coming back home. And if we, if anybody, if any of our listeners are like, I don't know my biblical history. Like, what happened? Like, how could they go back home? Like, what what happened to Babylon? Uh, Babylon was ultimately uh, destroyed. I guess you could say. It'd probably be the wrong term. Um, but Babylon was overthrown by the land of Persia. There's lots of different historical takes on exactly how that happened, how much overthrowing versus how much just movement and evolving happened. And depending on what historian you ask, the description of Persia is going to differ quite a bit. Um, I personally, as I look at history, I adhere to the explanation that the Persians uh, were much different in the way that they ruled. Uh, Babylon and Assyria were kind of the last of the brute forces. Like they were going to rule by brute domination and strength. But Persia had been highly, highly influenced by the, the Greeks. And the Greeks had a totally different way of doing things. They didn't, they didn't find it wise to waste that kind of resources. Like if you just go in and lay waste to a land, like that might be impressive. Like you might strike fear in the heart of all your enemies. But how many resources did you waste? Like here's a land just... It, if you can impress people enough that they will willingly surrender, if you can form partnerships, if you can establish treaties where you are clearly, remember the old treaties we talked about, the covenants, what do we call those? Uh, the suzerain vassal yeah, covenant. Yeah, suzerain vassal. Now they had evolved at this point in history, but it's the same general idea. If you can establish all these suzerain vassal relationships where you're the clear suzerain with the upper hand, 
there's so many resources and so many people and so much, it was just so much more efficient, a true Greek way to, and so Persia, being influenced by the Greeks, took a totally different stand than Babylon did. And so Babylon, well, they conquered you. They spent years laying conquest to your land. They had destroyed Jerusalem. They had carted you off. When Persia gets here, Persia just simply says, are you interested in being a part of our kingdom? Can you live under our rule? Then go back and rebuild. We could use a strong people that bow the knee to Persia. Now, other historians are going to paint a picture that Persia, um, we can't recommend this movie, but the movie 300, if you're familiar with that, paints, paints the other side of Persia. Um, the people that are coming to lay waste to Sparta, uh, that th- those are the Persians. And you really get the other side of the historical picture and the other side of the historical coin of who these Persians were. So, yeah, we can go back and forth on that. I haven't seen it, so I'll take your word for it. All right, there you go. Like I said, can't recommend it. But anybody that has seen it, they can utilize that picture. <laughs> So, uh, let's see here. When Cyrus, who's the ruler of the Persians, when he defeats the Babylonians, we are told that he makes a decree that allows the Jews to go back home. This is the Persian way. This isn't uh, just a stroke of generosity on the part of Cyrus. This is his method. It also helps us understand why all throughout the book of Ezra, we keep seeing letters that are exchanged that question the motives and and loyalty of the Jewish people to the Persian empire. Persia will not stand for a little rebellion beginning at the crossroads of the earth. Um, So if you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, it's it's like a big letter about letters. Like there's all these letters that get tossed back and forth because... The Israelites, the the Judeans, the Jews, they have to keep, at this point, they're now Jews. We're no longer Israelites. We're now talking about Jews because now they've come back home and Judeans have become uh, the reference of Jews. Um, And so these Jews are now writing back to Cyrus, trying to keep him happy. They're writing back to Persia. But then they have opponents that are also writing letters, trying to stoke the fire, trying to scapegoat them, trying to say that they're not loyal to Persia. And so there's all these letters going back and forth. And it's because of this suzerain-vassal relationship that you don't want to disrupt. So Ezra and Nehemiah are still prophets, though, right? We would consider them prophets or... Um, almost positive they're in the Ketuvim. You'd have to quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure uh, you'd have to double check me is what I meant by that. Don't quote me until you double check me. But I'm pretty sure Ezra and Nehemiah end up in the Ketuvim. Um, so they're writings and not seen as Nevahim. But I think you're looking right now. I am, and they are. They actually come... Uh, immediately before Chronicles. All right. So right there, right at the very tail end. Okay. So, um, yeah, and I think that as we get out of session one and into session three, it's going to make even so much more sense, but got to keep your appetite for session three coming. So, um, uh, it should be pointed out that very few, very few people, when we talk about them returning, very few people find themselves filled with joy on their way back home. Like I remember when I was taught this as a as a younger lad, I got this image of like, yay, the Jews all got to go back home. And there's this big celebration. And it, that's really not how it happened in history. And it's not what we find in the biblical narrative. The people of God come back in waves. This is a difficult transition. It is not going to be easy to go back and rebuild. It is not going to be easy to go back and reestablish Jerusalem. Uh, that is going to be a, a really difficult thing to do. And it wasn't one big mass exodus back home. It wasn't one big, huge return. It was one return led by a guy named Zerubbabel. And there was another guy named Ezra. And there's another wave was Nehemiah. And we would probably assume even more waves that were not even talked about. So these small little waves of people uh, continue coming back. 
So we, we don't want to get lost with all with all of that stuff, but good to note as we keep going. Um, I, I find it interesting as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, the different forms of leadership uh, really strike me as one of my big, huge takeaways. Like Ezra and Nehemiah to me are about leadership. Um, and we see different leaders. When Ezra goes back, well, first of all, there's Zerubbabel. We don't want to forget him. I'm going to focus on Ezra and Nehemiah. It's hard to forget a name like that. I know. Zerubbabel. Fantastic. And yet I forgot much of my, my education. Um, but uh, Zerubbabel, he has a pioneering spirit. We know leaders who are pioneers. Um, they, they want to start new things. I think one of the New Testament terms we like to use is apostle. Uh, apostles. Uh, but he has this pioneering spirit. He's the one that's going to go first. Somebody always needs to go first. Ezra was not the one to lead the charge. Ezra was the one to come second. Uh, part of the way through the book. In fact, you have a passage in Ezra 7, which is quite a ways into the book of Ezra. But uh, in Ezra 7, we're told about him showing up finally in Jerusalem. Go ahead and read that. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. Now, which king are we referring to here? I believe Artaxerxes, but I would have to now totally check. Darius? Oh, my goodness. Well, there he is totally a... There Talk about a letter from Artaxerxes to Ezra right after this right. passage. Okay, there you go. Okay. Then I'm going to say that. And that would have been my first guess, so I'm going to feel good about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, he had begun, he as in Ezra, had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That last verse there gives us a real picture of who Ezra was. And it's one of our favorites here at Impact Campus Ministries, because we, we talk about pursuing, modeling, and teaching. And if we need a verse to go to, we go to Ezra 7.10, and we cling to it. Because it said Ezra had given himself to pursuing, or what did it say? Study. Studying, and to modeling it, or... Observance. Observance, which is the walking out of that law. So he studies the law, he walks out the law, and then third and finally he... He teaches. He teaches the law. Now, Ezra is quite the guy, but this also gives us a, a peek into the kind of leadership that he 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 portrays, that he, he models. Ezra, by the way, a couple Midrashic tidbits from the Talmud. Um, the Talmud says he had such a passion for the law that if Moses had not given the law on Mount Sinai... Ezra would have given the law here at the return of the exiles, which I just love that. Makes your head spin, but nevertheless. On, and I assume he did in a way yeah. give them the law. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's that passage there about how he reads the law in the rain and they're weeping. It's just, it's just this incredible moment. But um, the passion to be compared to Moses is always something special in Jewish thought. That's a real doozy. This isn't just some chump that helped the return like Ezra was. And he had his work cut out for him. Because if you remember, we talked about last time, all of your wealthy, all of your educated, all of your, the, the cream of the crop are not the ones coming back. History tells us that, Jewish tradition tells us that, and the scriptures allude to that. Ezra does not have his A, his A plus star players that return. He has the below average C minus students. And he's got this passion for the word. Um, by the way, another Talmudic PS, the Talmud says that Ezra was the disciple of Baruch, who was the disciple of who, Brent? 
Baruch. Baruch was a scribe for somebody. Um, I don't recall. Good old Yermi Yahoo. Oh. His scribe was Baruch. So they say that Ezra is a second generation disciple of Jeremiah, which is why he has the passion he has to restore the relationship between God and his people. But how does he do it? He has this passion. How does he do it? Ezra, I always like to say, has a pastor's heart. He's a shepherd. If Zerubbabel is a pioneer, uh, Ezra is the exhorter. Like he's the guy that's going to get everybody together and talk things through and promote teamwork and care about your feelings. I don't want to make him sound trivial or soft in some weird off-putting way. I, I mean, Ezra has a pastor's heart. He has a shepherd's heart. And so he's the one that's going to write letters. He's the one, when he finds out that everybody's inter- intermarried, which is a, if you're going to go back and rebuild, it, people get hung up on the intermarriage thing. But if you're going to go back and rebuild, intermarriage is probably not a great way to get started. <laughs> it's probably not what you want all your people going back and doing if you're trying to get back and reestablish lineage and genealogy and so he comes back, he finds out that people have intermarried, and he calls a town hall meeting, essentially. And we all get together and we all talk about it. And by the time we're all done, we create a list with everybody's name of who. It's just really like we're all going to work together and come to this. But then there's Nehemiah. So as a shepherd, though, he uses his voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ezra was Ezra is the model for a lot of the things that we've been looking at, mainly in session one. But even in session two, as we talked about Saul and David, uh, Ezra is a continuation of that. But then we have Nehemiah. Nehemiah isn't like, he's not going to call a town hall meeting. In fact, you have the passage towards the end of Nehemiah. Go ahead and read this. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. <laughs> the old translation used to say, I pulled out their beards. So Nehemiah does not take the same approach that Ezra does. There are no town hall meetings. There are no, hey, let's sit down and talk about it. Now, I don't want to make light of this because we live in a day and an age where church leadership has really uh, been tested. And we have some real problems, particularly in the church, but in other organizations of abusive leadership. So I don't want to make light of this is a different period of history. This is a different period of the evolution of human consciousness. Let's remember that as we look at this. This is not a justification for how a leader should act today. It's a different point of history. They approached everything differently. Let's just remember what we're reading about a period 2,500 years ago. Having said that, what I, if, if I step back from the details, I see a totally different kind of leader. And, and I have just some closing observations as I think about Ezra and Nehemiah um, and, and this whole thing. The first thing I'd say is this. Please note that resistance, hardship, and troubles will come. If you want to go rebuild anything in your life, it is not going to be easy. One of the things that happens almost every single time, I've been talking to some of my students about this recently. Um, Recently, we had this event where people came out of, and they were just super excited. They were on fire. They had been rejuvenated. Immediately upon returning home, it seemed like just one thing after another would go wrong. The Bible affirms this experience from the Old Testament all the way through Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. 
Jesus gets baptized, and he immediately goes out to the desert to be what, Brent? Uh, to fast and, and to be tested. To be tested, to be tempted, right? Well, what did the people of Israel do? They get this amazing exodus experience, and they go out to the... To the desert. To the desert, where they have to be... Tested. Tested. Like, this is the common experience. And so, don't think that something awesome, the, the decree of Cyrus is going to show up in your life, and you're just going to go back and rebuild. It's going to be incredibly difficult. Um. In each story, the one constant piece is hardship. Rebuilding is difficult. Pushing forward and making progress is hard work. There will always be bumps in the road and obstacles to overcome. Good leaders help people overcome obstacles. They encourage people to keep going. They help us all endure. They find a way, uh, they find a way to get the job done. This is what leadership does. Now, what's interesting is Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, they all do it in different ways. But one constant experience in all of their uh, all of their experiences is struggle and hardship. For Ezra and for Nehemiah and for Zerubbabel, there are people that oppose their work. There are naysayers. There are people trying to turn it on its head and mess it up. Uh, there, there's people losing heart. There's people not following the rules and being disobedient. Um, there's people that just don't have the quality of character that you need. It doesn't matter which leader we're talking about. They all have the experience, which brings me to my second point. Please note that these leaders couldn't be more different in their leadership styles and personalities. Ezra and Nehemiah have completely different leadership styles. Ezra is a shepherd exhorter. Nehemiah is a prophet. He's got that fiery chutzpah, that Elijah-like fire. Uh, Ezra leads with encouragement and tact. Nehemiah leads with fire and inspiration. But both leaders are blessed in their work by God. Why? Because they are working as God has created them to work. They are working under their anointing. Which brings me to this one. Third, they were passionate. This went for all of them. It's easy to see the passion of Nehemiah, but don't think for a second that Ezra didn't lead each and every morning with passion. It's difficult to crawl out of bed each morning and encourage God's people to write another letter only to wait for a delayed response from some Persian king. It takes all kinds of passion for Zerubbabel to mount up the troops and head back home into the unknown. You don't lead a charge of the remnant without passion and an undying commitment to persevere. But I believe that each person that's listening to this podcast has a certain capacity and calling for leadership. You may be the kind of leader that everyone would call a leader. You might be the kind of business owner or supervisor or teacher, but maybe you aren't, but you also might be a parent or a mentor. You might be gifted with the ability to serve. You might be the one woman that some young girl looks up to. You might be the one man who doesn't realize that his colleague is watching him. You are a leader of something and your calling is to be the kind of leader that God created you to be. If you are a Nehemiah, we need you to be a Nehemiah. Of course, if you are a Nehemiah, you probably don't need me to tell you that. But if you're an Ezra, we need you to be an Ezra. If you're a pioneer, we need you to, we need more people like Zerubbabel. And we need you to be passionate about leading your way and leading well. So lead on because the people of God need it. And there's a ton of stuff. Like there's just a ton of stuff in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um that that is the way, that is the 10,000 foot perspective that I have internalized as I've studied them. I got a lot more work to do. Did you so, uh, mention the theme for these two books? Ah, if we have a theme, it's going to be passionate leadership, passionate leadership. So uh third Isaiah was a servant. Fourth Isaiah was hope. Ezra and Nehemiah, passionate leadership. 
Rebuilding God's Rebuilding. people. Yep. Rebuilding's not going to be easy. We're going to need leaders. And this this is still, um, we're in the time period where we're several hundred years before the time of Christ, right? So, yes. like there's a... We're talking 586 BC, 586. 530s BC. So we are in the 6th century BC. So they have they have quite a ways to go before we get to what what we know of um, Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Yeah, and it's never going to be like they're not going to like rebuild some great world. Like it's going to be a struggle all the way through. Uh, like uh, they're going to they're going to rebuild this temple like f- four times, five times. It's not until Herod the Great, which is probably not the person that Jewish history will look at and be like, yes, under Herod the Great, we rebuilt the temple. Um, but th- th- they are going to struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. Uh, it's not going to be really easy to just go back home and rebuild something awesome. All right. Well, sounds good. We're looking for passionate leaders. If uh, if you're one of them and you want to maybe lead a discussion group, perhaps get yeah, in touch with us. Absolutely. And just a side note, we do need passionate leaders. Yeah. Like to speak poetically. Um. Where where are we at in this world? This we're in a we're in a pretty interesting time right now, uh, and a lot of people are are struggling with jaded cynicism, with with the call of God and the church, and what do we do in politics? And and like this is a weird time to be alive. Guess what? We need leaders, and we need you to be you, because whatever sits on the other side of this weird season, ugly season, whatever this weird disruptive time that we're in right now as a country or as a people, as a culture, we're going to get to the other side of that by people doing the one thing that God put you here to do. So, uh, yeah, glad you said that. Anyway, back to what you were saying. Uh, well, you know, passionate leadership. Yeah. Get a hold of us. Yeah. Become the passionate leader that, uh, God has put inside of you. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I haven't talked about the Facebook page in a while. No. Baymont Establishment has a Facebook page. Marty's always posting links there, usually a couple yep. of different ones per week. Yep. Uh, you'll get updates to the, um, on the discussion groups, whether we're meeting or not, uh, if that applies to you. Yep. And, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of great discussion going on there. So. Absolutely. Check and we do that need out. discussion leaders. We need them all around the country. Let's see yep. if I can do this closing. See okay. if I've heard it enough. Time. All right. Uh, we got discussion groups here on the Palouse. Uh, we meet Tuesday nights in Moscow and Wednesday nights in Pullman. You can find uh, Brent on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find me on Twitter at Marty Solomon. Uh, We appreciate you joining us for the Baymont Podcast, and we hope you have a good day. How was that? We do hope that you have a good day. Absolutely. So much hope. (laughs) All right. Grace and peace.